So, you know, um, for, for most of us, faith comes in fits and starts. Um, if you're not stuck in a rut, it should be growing with you, though. So in college, I had, uh, looking back, I had really like a two-phase conversion. Um, the first part, I feel confident in. The second part, I think, was more like a shadow thing. So the first phase of my conversion is I read the Gospel of Matthew. I'd never read the Bible before, New Testament especially. I... I found Jesus so compelling in the Gospel of Matthew that I just basically signed up to be a Jesus follower and to discover the God that Jesus knew. Like the Jesus vision of God was very compelling for me. And then as I started, I figured, well, I guess I, guess I have to hang around Christians now. And as I started to do that, I got the impression that I, I part of being like really, you know, on the right track and having your conversion really be, be correct was believing that my sins were so bad that God couldn't forgive me without the bloody sacrifice of his son. So they must be much worse than I ever ever thought my sins. And it, it didn't really make sense to me and I tried to get it explained to me and the explanations didn't hold water. But I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm not getting it. I was young. I, I, everyone around me was so certain about the way things were and I was so uncertain. And, you know, as a young person, um, you worry about getting things right. Like, I wasted my 20s worrying so much about getting things right and that's just, it doesn't work for faith. And, and um, I, I wish I'd gotten over that sooner. It would have been better for everybody. Um, but I found myself at, at the age of 20 um, telling my story to a group of Pentecostal Christians from India who had a faith home in Brooklyn, New York. It's a very long story how that came about. And th th this was like a very different kind of Pentecostal group. Um, they had two rules that distinguished their group. One was married pastors had to be celibate within marriage even. They had to live with their spouse once they became a pastor as brother and sister. The other rule was no medicine was allowed for anything. So I had, like, they were serving this great Indian food and they, they served this great curry that was super hot and I took it like as a challenge to my masculinity to finish this and I, I did it and like I woke up at 12, you know, you go to bed early in those kind of situations, it was a weekend thing. I woke up at 12, it's just horrible heartburn. And this was before I was like 40 and 50 and that's just normal, but this was like in my, whoa, I had never had that before. And I, I went down to the, like the communal kitchen and I was looking for something and I realized, oh, they don't do medicine. I'm like, I wonder if this is okay. And I found some baking soda and I put it in some water and I took it down and wouldn't you know, the pastor walks by right at that time. I'm like, oh crap. And he looks at me and I just say, heartburn. And I thought he was going to try to do a faith healing on me or something like that. He, he just said, you know, it's going to take more than that baking soda to put that fire out, son. I said, okay. So I was the featured speaker the next day to give my testimony to, to this group. I was like the newly saved person. And I, just, I was just setting the scene of my story that I was, you know, I was an atheist in high school. I smoked a little of the marijuana. I, I, you know, there was a surprise pregnancy that meant I got married right out of high school. And I'm just, I'm just like giving the basic details and the looks on their faces. They were aghast. They were like, oh my God, we've got a sinner in our midst. And, and I, I went, I had the strangest reaction to that. 
my reaction was, oh, good. Like, I have a story. My, I, I have like, a, I was a bad sinner story, and I got saved, and like, it was like I filled in something in my faith resume, and I was, I took it on like full bore, that identity of myself. So over the years, that first phase of my conversion, moved by Jesus, I want to follow him, uh, inspired by his vision of God, that has always seemed to me fruitful and sustaining and real, but what happened in the Brooklyn seems like it might have happened at a youth camp with a lot of group dynamic at play, if you know what I mean. Maybe some of you can relate. I saw so many people as a pastor in, in church settings that were so hard on themselves and so hard on other people, and there was nothing liberating about it. It almost seemed to me like it was a form of like socially induced OCD. Um, People were already, you know, deal with so much sense of inadequacy and, that, you know, there's something vaguely wrong with you. I mean, depending on your psychic history, there's all sorts of reasons for feeling there's just something basically defective about you. And this approach to conversion um, just seemed to make it worse for people, not better. And now we also know that oppression, oppressive systems foster a culture that dehumanizes people, shames them, guilts them uh, in order to justify the oppression, the mistreatment as well they really deserve it. This is just a characteristic of all oppressive systems. Jesus never preached a let me convince you how bad you are sermon to his mostly oppressed audience. He exalted or he lifted the lowly. And, you know, the oppression that I would see now in, in our everyday world, um, it, it's interesting that it's often intensified, actually, not relieved by a certain religious approach. And I think this is especially true for those who are growing up LGBTQ, especially in a religiously um, unfriendly setting, um, are, are people of color who have to endure overt and covert racism every day of their lives, uh, being female. This, this like affects a lot of people, a lot of us. The way that religion is used to make these forms of oppression worse is actually antithetical, completely opposite of what Jesus is about, what his interest is in doing, what his message is. How so? How is it antithetical? Well, Jesus lived his entire life under a cloud of moral suspicion that you know the kind of you know, Jesus the son of God divine sinless and all that that's like our reputation of Jesus in the 21st century but Jesus in his time lived his whole life under a cloud of moral suspicion it was widely known in the little town of Nazareth that Jesus uh, Joseph his father hadn't sired Jesus isn't that a great use of the word sired I'm pleased with myself um, <laughs> So um, Jesus actually carried a social stigma with him wherever he went. He was labeled, there was a, a term for it in the Hebrew, it was mamzer. You know, bastard would be the, would be the rough English equivalent. But in that era, like your, the moral reputation of your parents was really visited on the children. So you carried that. It's actually, some scholars think it's quite possible that Jesus remained single into his early adulthood, like age 30, because he had this status and it disqualified him socially from getting 
uh, married for various reasons of establishing uh, patrimony and all that. To make it worse, Jesus, as he began his public ministry, found himself interacting a lot and hanging out with uh, the people who were responding to his message, which were tax collectors, uh, prostitutes, and like notorious sinners. And this only added to his reputation as a morally loose person, right? So the Gospels make a point of reporting that Jesus was labeled in his time a glutton, a drunkard, and a sinner, in, in effect, a party animal. Now, this is a big deal because a bad reputation can kill you, right? It can literally kill you. Ask Stefan Clark's family. Uh, he's the, the, the latest black family that's mourning a son who's mistaken for a criminal and shot by police. Now, the police are, this is Sacramento, right? The police are responding to a report of someone smashing car windows. Um, you know, I, I had a house on the west side of Detroit, and we had mailboxes that were on a post. And, you know, every couple of years, the kids would come in trucks and take bats and smack the, you know, mess up your mailbox, and you'd have to replace it. I always blame those kids from Dexter with trucks doing that. I don't know if it was Dexter or not, but it was just like, a, it just happened. This is what the police are responding to, but it's in an African-American neighborhood. They come across Stefan. He's in his grandmother's backyard. And they see what they think is a gun in his hand. They feel threatened, and 20 bullets later, eight that hit the target, all in the back. It's another bad police shooting. And he had a cell phone, not a gun. Now, a thing like this doesn't keep happening in the United States in a vacuum. You know, the, the 13th Amendment, great, um, there's a great uh, documentary called 13th, I think, that won the, an Oscar for documentary a couple of years ago. Worth seeing, if you're, especially if you're white, see this for your people of color friends. Um, 13th Amendment abolished slavery in 1865, and it read this, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And I was just curious, why add something in the Constitution about crime in an amendment banning slavery? So naturally, this led to a propaganda campaign to criminalize being black. So after the Civil War, there were posters, there were plays, eventually there were movies. You may have heard of the movie Birth of a Nation, horrible movie in the way it depicted black men, depicting black men as rapists of white women, like the worst taboo of crimes. President Wilson, why couldn't it have been President Harding or some, with some other name, shows Birth of the Nation in the White House the same year that there's like 25,000 Klansmen are rallying in D.C. I used to be proud of the guy I was named after until I learned this. Oh my gosh. I wasn't named after him. He, he just, we have a common name. <clears throat> and so as a result of this heritage, when people see a black man in certain neighborhoods with a cell phone, they're more likely to assume that it's a gun and feel threatened and open fire. There's a connection between these things. It's, it's bad for your health to have a bad reputation. This is something that Jesus himself obviously found out. And this is why Jesus took such great pains 
to lift up the lowly rather than add to their oppression by shaming, guilting, making them feel like something must be wrong with me to deserve this treatment. And I place in evidence four exhibits. Exhibit one for this. Jesus presents himself to be baptized at the beginning of his public ministry to John the Baptist who responds, having had like a revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, John responds, I'm not worthy to untie your sandal. Does Jesus respond, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your Father who is in heaven, you aren't worthy. No. He responds, in effect, well, you're worthy enough to fulfill all righteousness. What do you want me to do? Baptize myself? Like, let's get on with it. So he dismisses this claim of unworthiness right at the beginning of his ministry. Exhibit two. And this, uh, Emily re referenced this, um, our topic last week, on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus stops at Beth Bethany, about a day's journey from the big city, uh, for a semi-public banquet with his friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Mary, a single woman like her siblings, takes the pint of the family's, you know, like heirloom, the most precious, expensive, fragrant oil and anoints his feet with it, a pint of this stuff. And, he, and she's wiping his feet at the banquet with her hair, an extremely intimate gesture. All of it is like socially shocking. The people would have been averting their eyes, but it says in the text that the perfume just filled the house. And so it's like God saying, this is really happening and you can't even avert, avert your eyes. You're going you're gonna to experience this. What does Jesus do? He lets it unfold. He receives this sacramental anointing, as it were, from Mary and defends Mary when she is criticized. So what, the, what this is, is this is an enacted parable of worship. What's going on when human beings worship God. When we offer ourselves to God, this is a picture of what's happening. Mary knew this perfume was precious. Jesus knew the perfume was precious. The onlookers all knew the perfume was precious. That's why some of them objected. This is too precious to waste in this way. When the Ramadays um, dedicated Ahana, Arya, and Rishi, they knew, God knows, and we know that these kids are precious. There's no doubt about that. You know, so I just want to say for those of you getting baptized or renewing your baptism today, keep that in your mind as the picture of what's going on in the eyes of God. So that's exhibit two, Mary and Bethany. Exhibit three, soon after this. Okay, so this whole message is unfolding. It's building in intensity, one layer at a time. Soon after this, Jesus kind of mirrors what Mary did to him. Jesus takes Mary's part and gives the disciples his, her part by, his part by washing their feet. It's, I've never saw these as mirror images, but Mary washing the feet of Jesus with that anointing oil, and then Jesus returns it, the favor to his disciples, only this time he's the Mary and they are him. And Peter objects to this, because a slave should be doing this, not their master. Peter says, Lord, um, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replies, unless I do, you'll have no part in me. Peter replies, well, then wash it all. I mean, like, just give me a shower. Let's take a bath. And Jesus says, no, 
You're clean already. He says you're clean already to the one that he knows is going to betray him. He doesn't say you're a horrible sinner. In fact, you will soon betray me. But God's anger toward you will be blunted by my bloody sacrifice. Lucky you. I'm not saying we haven't all sinned, that we don't need forgiveness. I mean, you don't, a sociologist can tell us that. <laughs> I'm saying there is a way of spinning things that can be used against you by oppressive powers that have nothing to do with Jesus. Exhibit 4. Immediately after the foot washing in the Gospel of John, Jesus introduces a completely new, never used before term for the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit was, it was known in Israel, it was referred to, the Spirit of God from the very beginning is known. Jesus gives a new term, a new label to the Holy Spirit, and his label is paraclete in the Greek, which means defender of the accused. Not accuser of the guilty, defender of the accused. The purpose of Jesus is to defend us against accusation, not to add to it. The Holy Spirit, defender of the accused, is just juxtaposed in the Gospel of John in particular to the bad spirit. The bad spirit in John is named frequently by Jesus, and that's the spirit that animates oppression. And the name of that spirit is Hasatan, Satan, which means the accuser, and Diabolos, devil, which means slanderer one who speaks against others. You know, to be oppressed is to be mired in the molasses of social suspicion. If you feel like you're just constantly working against a reputation that has kind of socially mediated, that's the experience of oppression. I mean, you know, if, if you're gay or bi or trans or queer, that, you know, at this stage, even as your rights are being reluctantly recognized, there's always that, don't push us too fast, don't be selfish, it takes time for us to adjust, this is really hard on us, why don't you consider our feelings, take it easy. Well, that, that's just the suspicion generated by oppression that is animated by accusation and slander. I mean, if you're brown or black, you, you know you have to be extra careful around the police, extra respectful. Well, why? Because there's a burden of proof on you that society has placed. The power of oppression is in accusation and slander that causes suspicion. You know, if you're a woman and another boss makes another pass, someone, if you share it with them, if you talk to the HR or whatever, someone will suspect that maybe you came on to him. Oppression always puts a greater burden of proof on the oppressed to demonstrate their innocence. One of my daughters had this experience not that long ago. She, go, she goes to her supervisor to complain about it and the supervisor says to her, you know, you have to be extra careful if you're pretty. I heard that and I was like, eh. I, 
bad words were going through my head. They almost came out even at church. You know, as the Gospel of John comes to its climax, Jesus does this dramatic thing. He names the Holy Spirit with a, a, a never-before-used name, Defender of the Accused. You know, think about that. That term holy has been used against many people. But Holy Spirit is now named by Jesus Defender of the Accused. But there's one more thing. The story ends in the Gospel of John, and it's clearest in the Gospel of John, this part of the story. The story ends not with crucifixion. And remember, crucifixion was a tool of Roman oppression to criminalize Jewish people, knowing that there was a Jewish proverb that went, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so for the Romans, you know, like, Crucifixion had a double-edged sword because there was this pre-existing tradition in Israel that said anyone who's, who's um, killed, hanged on a tree is cursed of God. So no, no, crucifixion as an otherwise final verdict does not stand in the light of resurrection. The point of resurrection isn't let's sell some Jesus bobbleheads. He's so great. The point is, God declares the scapegoats who live under suspicion innocent, not guilty, not even a little guilty. So there, there's, an, there's an older gay couple who uh, showed me this in a very, um, in a way that's still resonating with me. I feel like I'm still learning what they taught me. And I've, I've mentioned their story maybe once before. Um, but some stories bear repeating. Um, the conversion of Saul, Saul was told three times in the, in the book of Acts. So I fully defend my repeat of this story. Um, so I'm at dinner with um, this older couple, Eddie and Tom. They're a couple in Julia's church. My, my uh, wife is a, an Episcopal uh, priest in Farmington Hills. Uh, they've been together many years, uh, Eddie and Tom. They, they actually raised two grandchildren as their own kids. Um, Tom lost a leg to cancer a couple of years ago. Eddie has been doting over him ever since. Um, they live in a, in a socially very conservative part of Southeast Michigan. And Eddie told me that he, uh, during the 1990s, he didn't leave his house during the daytime for three full years. He was so afraid of being found out by his neighbors as gay. So I'm asking Tom his story because he's newly returned to, um, to faith and to participating in church after many decades away. And I find out, well, he was raised as a strict Baptist. Maybe it was Nazarene. It was a fundamentalist, very strict um, form of uh, Christianity. He loved God. He was like that kid in the youth group. He loved God. He went to Bible college. At Bible college, he heard the first sermon railing against homosexuality. He thinks, I can't not be what I am. I can't not be gay. I guess I can't be a Christian. So it's decades later that he returns to faith at um, Julia's church and to his identity as a, as a Jesus person. And I'm always curious about like 
spiritual experience, like how it works in people. It's, it's very subtle and you kind of have to ask questions to find out what's really going on under the surface and it's always under the surface. So I asked Tom, well, what happened like inside of you? Um, well, like what was like the move or the shift in inside that despite your horrible experience with church and faith, you made this like move to reconnect and and he thinks long he he, he uh, you have to picture tom um he looks down he's got a frown on his face i'm thinking oh something here uh, hope i haven't been too forward in my questioning then he looks up as if he's um either confiding a secret to me for the first time or or actually he looked more like he was making a bold confession he said i guess it happened when i said to myself Tom, you're not so bad. You're not a bad person. And when he said that, it was like the scales fell off my eyes. I mean, I saw the gospel in a new light. Remember, for me, like the gospel was realizing how, what a bad person I was because in, a, in high school I smoked a little marijuana and then, you know, there was a surprise pregnancy and I had to get married and oh gosh, and I'm like, oh, okay, good. I'm, it's really happening. I'm really feeling bad about myself now. The scales fell off my eyes. What Tom's experience was, which was incontrovertibly of the Spirit, that awareness, I'm not so bad, was a work of the Spirit, named by Jesus, defender of the accused, the Spirit sent by Jesus, whom God raised from the dead as a public declaration of his innocence and the innocence of the people Jesus claims, including Tom. Anyone who has lived under oppression of this sort, and there are many different forms of it, I mean, just growing up in that kind of a religious environment as a kid and not having any way to protect yourself from it and taking on some stuff in your psyche that just was amplifying the unhealthy parts of your psyche. That's a form of religious oppression. Anyone who has lived under oppression of this sort, an oppression named by Jesus, Satan, meaning the accuser, the devil, meaning slanderer, is called to come under this new spirit, defender of the accused, with a new verdict declared by resurrection, innocent, not guilty, not even a little. And by the way, this is like the portal for all of us it, to enter into what if we cooperate with God will become a new world, a new creation, a new social order. So this is the gospel that I just, I want to name today. And I want to celebrate this gospel today. I want to celebrate it in the bread and the wine of communion. And I want to celebrate it in the waters of baptism with all of you. I'm not getting baptized, but we're all celebrating. <laughs> and because all of you have taught me so much about what Jesus really means in real life. Thank you. Amen. Okay, we're going to have our offering.